All right, brothers and sisters, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to take it out with me. We are going to be in Mark chapter 12 today, verses 35 through 37. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Who are you? Who are you? What would you say if a stranger asked that question to you? Better yet, what if someone asked five, ten people who know you? Who is that? Who, who are they? What kind of picture would those people paint of who you are? Now, our culture today is almost obsessed with questions of identity. I understand this. I think many of us do. When I was in high school, perhaps it was like this for you as well, when I was in high school, it seemed like everyone was trying to carve out an identity for themselves. We all had to be known by something we did. We, we all had to be known as the person who was like this. And so the, the, the question was, what kind of person were you? Were you a jock? Were you an academic? Were you a wild partier? Were you the class clown? Were you the, the farmer? Were you the home, homecoming queen, the tough guy, the rebel? What were you known for? But it, it wasn't just high school. We all still feel the pull to, to be known for something today, to, to be a certain kind of person in everyone else's eyes. What do people think of when they think of me? Do they respect me? Do they like me? Now, in, in one sense, this can be a good thing. It can be a good motivator for us to, to think about, do, do others think of me as a Christian? Do others think of me as someone who loves God and loves others? That can be a good thought exercise and a good motivation. However, in our culture, our culture is, is obsessed. Our time that we live in, our specific part of the world, our culture is obsessed with identity. Carl Truman, author and historian, wrote in one of his books that our culture's ultimate value is expressive individualism. Today's culture's ultimate value is expressive individualism. In other words, expressing yourself to the world around you is the most important thing in the world. That's what our culture is telling us and teaching us in a hundred ways. The most important thing is you expressing yourself to the world around you. Our culture tells us that the most important thing in the world is us, me. It's all about me. And in a culture like that, the Bible is a wonderful antidote, calling us to take our eyes off of ourselves and turn them to Jesus. And so I actually started with that question because I want you to see this morning, that's not the question. That's not the question we should be asking. The question today is not, who are you? Who am I? The question is, who is Jesus? Let's take our eyes off of ourselves. Let's quit thinking of ourselves for an hour this morning. In a culture that tells us to think of ourselves above everything else, God is calling you this morning to take your eyes off of yourself and put them onto Christ. Who is he? And that question, brothers and sisters, will do you so much more good than the question of who am I? Who is he? That's what we're asking today. 
Let's read our text. This all comes from these short verses in Mark 12, verses 35 through 37. This is God's word. Mark writes, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, this is a short passage, but I want to pull out for you this morning four lessons that we can take away that are big lessons in our lives that, that, that will bless you not only, I believe, in our understanding of the word and the Lord, but bless us practically in our everyday lives. The first thing I want to pull out from this text with you and for you is from verse 36, where it says, David himself said, in the Holy Spirit. What that is telling us is your Bible is inspired by God. Your Bible is inspired by God. Before Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, that's what he quotes from right there, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit said. In the Holy Spirit, David said that. In other words, David said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote Psalm 110 and any other psalm. If you remember a long time ago in one of our sermons, we noted that even though Mark is not one of the 12 apostles who walked around with Jesus, he wrote one of the four Gospels. Well, how did he get his information? Almost certainly his source was Peter, who was one of the 12. Peter was almost certainly Mark's source for this Gospel and the information in it. Well, that same Peter wrote a couple books of the Bible, and in 2 Peter, Peter says this of the inspiration of Holy Scripture. He says, No part of Scripture was ever written by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul talks of it this way in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God breathed. And so, what happened when the men who wrote the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, what happened when they sat down to write? is that the Lord was overseeing that writing and the Holy Spirit was inspiring that writing to ensure that those words were not just the words of a man, but they were the very words of God himself. The Holy Spirit inspired every single word in your Bible, ensuring that it was God's very own words. So when you read the words of Moses or of David or of Paul or of John, or whoever else it is writing in the Bible, you are reading the very words of God himself. They are the words of those men, and they are at the same time the words of God himself. It is not as though God put these men into a trance and they they lost consciousness and they they just wrote whatever. No, their personality comes through. You can read the books of the Bible and see the personality of the different writers, but it's still the whole time the words of God, inspired by God's Holy Spirit. And so that means, brothers and sisters, that you can trust every single word in this book. You can trust every single word in it. You can bank your eternity 
on the words in this book. The promises of God are in here. And they are, they are for us to bank our lives and our afterlives on. And it means that when you come to the Bible, you are reading a book that is without error. There are no errors or contradictions anywhere in your Bible because it's the very word of God. It's God's word. There are no errors or contradictions anywhere in it. Even though this book was written by 40 different men over the course of about 1,500 years, there are no errors, no contradictions anywhere in it because it is God's word. God ensured that they were his words, perfect and without error. But they're not just perfect. They're not just right. They're powerful. They're powerful. This book is unlike any other book. This is not like sitting down to read a, a John Grisham novel. This is not like sitting down to read a, a self-help book on whatever topic you might get some good, good worldly wisdom on. There is a power in this book. When we read the Bible, we are hearing from God himself. Do you realize what a big deal that is? What if tonight, as you were lying down to sleep, God spoke to you audibly? And he said, this is what I want you to do for me. And you knew it was God. There was no question about it. You knew it was him. He said, I want you to do this tomorrow. I hope that all of us would wake up, and that would be the very first thing we did we would make sure we did it fully and completely, no questions asked, because God told me. God spoke to me. Think of the weight that you would put on those words that he spoke to you, because it's God speaking to you. Do you not understand that that is what's happening every time we read this? That is what's happening every time we read the Bible. If you'll notice, when, when I preach, before we read our text I say something to the effect of this is God's word. Because I want you to understand there's a difference between the words I'm saying right now and the words that we read, because those come from God. The words I'm saying are just mine. The words we read are God's. When you sit down to read the Bible in your home, when you're by yourself, you are about to hear from God. Do you understand that? Do you, do you feel the weight of it? Do you feel the anticipation of what that is like? Can you imagine what it would be like if we only had one copy of this thing in the entire world and how valuable that would be? And yet many of us have multiple copies of it and then 35 different translations on our phones and we take it for granted every day because Satan has deceived us into believing it's no big deal. Friends, it is the biggest deal in the world that we have the very words of God. The fact that the ruler of the universe and the one who made you and me has given us thousands and thousands of his words so that we might know him when he did not have to. This is astounding. And as you read this, this book, that is not like any other book, it's more than just a typical book, as you read it, it's working on you. Whether you feel like it is or not, whether you actually feel it or not, this is working on you. God is working on your soul and your heart as you read it. That's what we are allowing him to do when we sit down and read our Bibles. We're allowing God to do his work on me. Sometimes, i got to be honest with you, and I, I bet many of you have felt like this too. Sometimes we read parts of this Bible and we think, I don't know if that did anything. 
I, I don't know if I even understood what I just read. Some parts of the Bible are harder than others, more dry than others if we're honest. But do we believe when we come to even those parts that the Lord is doing work on me as I read this? Even if I don't feel it. Do you believe that that's happening? These are the supernatural words of God. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about it. In Hebrews 4 verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's living and active. It's a sharp sword. It cuts back at you as you read it. It does work on you as you read it. That is God's word in front of you. Jesus says of God's word, by it we know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Paul says that by it we are being cured from the disease of being conformed to this world and its ways. And by it our minds are being renewed, little by little, day by day. Your Bible is inspired by God. And all that is contained in that little phrase where Jesus says, David himself says, in the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to quote something from the Old Testament. Your Bible is inspired by God, brothers and sisters. Believe it. Treat it accordingly. View it and value it accordingly. Second this morning from our text, not only is the Bible more than a book, but Jesus is more than a man. Our text tells us that Jesus is more than a man. Who is Jesus? That's what we're getting into. Jesus is more than a man. It's important we, we don't misunderstand what Jesus is doing here. Look at verse 35 one more time with me. It says Jesus is teaching in the temple, and he says to, to the big throng that's in front of him. We know that it's a great throng from verse 37. There's a big crowd in front of him. He's teaching, and he says to all of them, how can the scribes, Remember who the scribes are? They're the, the experts in the Bible, the experts in the Old Testament. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now understand, Jesus is not disagreeing that the Christ is the son of David. Do you know what I mean when I say the Christ there? Jesus Christ. Did you know Christ is not Jesus' last name? Do you guys know that? It's not his last name. Okay? Christ means Messiah. Messiah. So the Messiah, Jesus is saying, kind of speaking in, in second person about himself, but he's, he's just putting it out there. He's saying to the crowd, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is going to be David's son? He's going to be a descendant of David. And that's true. That's all over the Old Testament. All of the Jews would have known that. All of the Jews would have known that their Old Testaments, time and time again, proclaimed, when the Messiah comes, he will be a descendant of David meaning he'll, he'll have the right to the throne. He'll be a king. When the Messiah comes, he'll be a descendant of David. And so Jesus says, well, how, how can they say he's, he's the son of David? He's not disagreeing with that, but notice what he goes on to do. He goes on to point out that these experts in the Bible have completely missed something about him, and it's been hiding in plain sight. He's, he's saying this to the normal people, but the normal people are listening to Jesus. They're hearing him gladly because he's, he's genius. Jesus points out something that the scribes have missed. And it's been hiding in plain sight all along. And it comes from Psalm 110 verse 1. 
That's the quotation that Jesus gives here. Psalm 110 verse 1. And here's what it says. Psalm 110 verse 1. David writing this says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now notice the graphic that I just put up. Okay, This is a picture of what this looks like in our Old Testament. We're in the New Testament in Mark. It's a quotation from the Old Testament, so you won't see this in your New Testament quotation. But what you will see, if you go to your Old Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1, what you will see is this. The Lord says to my Lord. Now notice, I've underlined one of those in red and one of those in blue. David is saying, the Lord says to my Lord. Okay, all of a sudden, there's two different people here. There's two different people here. And David is king when he is writing this. King of all Israel. That matters. There's two different people he's referring to here. Now, notice a little bit about the, the details of these two lords here. Do you see that the one underlined in red is in all caps? And the one underlined in blue is not. The one underlined in red is in all caps, even though the, 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 second, the, the last three letters are smaller. They're still capital letters. And then the second lord is not in all caps. As you read through your Old Testaments, you're going to see this. Over and over again, you'll see this Lord in all caps. Why is, why is it like that in our English Bibles? Here's what's going on. The translators are giving you a sense of every time it mentions God's covenant name, Yahweh. Yahweh. You remember Exodus 3, the burning bush? God says to Moses, go to the Israelites and deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh. And Moses says, what if they don't believe me? What if the Israelites say, well, well, what's the name of this God who sent you? And God tells him, okay, I'll give you my name. You tell them, I am sent me. I am has sent me. I am who I am. That's, that's what God says his name is. And from the Hebrew behind that, I am who I am, we get the word Yahweh, God's covenant name that he uses with his covenant people over and over again in the Old Testament. So every time you read your Old Testaments and you see Lord in all caps, that's what it means. And if you see another Lord that's not in all caps, it's just the word for like, you know, master, Lord, the one over me. And so what David is saying here is, Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, somebody different, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And what Jesus says here in Mark is, how can David call him Lord and yet he's supposed to be David's son? How can he be somebody who comes after David and under David, but he's somebody who is before David and over David at the same time. Jesus is saying, you guys ever seen that? Have you ever thought of that? And you can imagine the scribes in the audience saying, wait, what? That, I, I never saw that before. Jesus is more than just a man. That is what he is saying. What did the, the Jews expect the Messiah to be like? What did they expect of their Messiah? They expected him to be a son of David, a descendant of David. They expected him to be a king, but they expected him to be an earthly king. The Jews were expecting an earthly king like David, like Solomon. The Jews were expecting someone to come and return their nation to prominence, to, to, to prosperity like it was in the days of David and in the days of Solomon. They were expecting someone to come and take back the city of Jerusalem. Kings back then were also military leaders, right? They, they went out and fought battles at the front of the lines for their people. 
And so the, the Jews thought that's what the Messiah is going to be. That's who the Christ is going to be when he comes. But friends, they, they missed completely the fact that Jesus is so much more than that. That the Messiah was not just a son of David. He was the son of God. The son of God. Just a couple practical lessons for us to take home this morning from this. Number one, brothers and sisters, beware of putting your hopes in earthly kings and kingdoms. Beware of putting your hopes in earthly kings and kingdoms. All of us need to hear that this morning, this year, because we're coming up on a presidential election. And every four years, it seems like half the country starts putting their hope in this one earthly ruler, and the other half puts their hope in this other one. And if only our guy would get into the presidency and get into office, then things would be better. And then it doesn't take us very long to realize, oh yeah, no, that's, it, it didn't fix everything. He didn't, he didn't fix all our problems. We've still got the problems. We can't put our trust in earthly kings and kingdoms. Psalm 146 verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. And son of man there just talks about, it just means a human, a descendant of another human. Don't put your trust in a, a human person in whom there is no salvation, but there is a son of man who is also the son of God. And in him there is salvation. And it is in him we put our trust. But his kingdom, brothers and sisters, is not of this world. And so we don't put our trust in earthly kings, and we don't put our trust in earthly kingdoms. His kingdom is not of this world. But in him there is salvation. And he is the one to whom we should put our trust. It is so very disheartening to see someone who claims to be a Christian yet who very clearly cares more about politics than they do about the Lord Jesus and his salvation. And it usually comes out every four years. You see it in the way they talk. You see it in the things that they get fired up about. You see it in what they post on social media. Even though they say the most important thing in their lives is Jesus, the most important thing in my life is God, their actions speak a different, a different tale. It seems like the most important thing is politics. It's like someone who doesn't realize that their underwear is showing. Excuse me, your, your idol is showing. Your idol is showing. Beware of putting your hopes in earthly kings and kingdoms. But let's say we're not doing that. Brothers and sisters, we also need to beware of, of reducing Jesus to less than he is. Beware of making the mistakes that the Jews were making in reducing Jesus to less than he is. Friends, Jesus is not a political figure who just so happens to agree with all of your personal preferences in politics. Jesus is not someone for you to use to, to, to make your point on what you really care about. Jesus is not just a wise teacher. Yeah, everything he, he taught was wonderful, and if all, only we would follow his teaching, the world would be a better place. That's not all he is. Jesus is not just a social justice warrior, making sure that everyone gets treated with fairness and justice. Jesus is not your life coach, where you take advice from him every now and then, whenever you want it. He is not an inspirational devotional. There are so many believers today who have reduced Jesus down to an inspirational devotional. Jesus, will you give me just a little verse that, that can make me happy this morning so I can start my day off on the right foot and then I'm going to forget you the rest of the day. Jesus is not your spiritual insurance agent. 
whom you call upon when there's an emergency, but all the rest of the times it's, it's fine to just forget about it. And Jesus is not a religious version of Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. And so you better be good and do good things so that he'll reward you with good stuff. Jesus is so much more than all of that. He is Savior and Lord. He is my Savior and my Lord. Lord, like David said, it's another word for master. He is master and commander of my heart. What about yours? He is Savior and Lord. He is the Son of David, but he is also the Son of God. And he is offering all of us the chance to be right with God. Picture God as the great and ultimate judge. He is the great and ultimate judge. And he will judge us by whether or not we met the standard of conduct that he gave to us. Friends, here's a secret. None of us has. All of us have fallen short of it. All of us have sinned against this God. And there is coming a day where he will judge every person. God is coming to judge all of us. How can you be in his, his good graces? How can you be right with him when he comes? There is only one way. If you pledge allegiance and love to his son. If you pledge your allegiance and love from your heart to his son, then you can be right with this judge who is coming to reckon with every single one of us. But that's the only way. Jesus is offering all of us the chance to be right with this judge, with this God, before the end, before it is too late. Now, lesson number three from our text. It comes actually from that, that quotation from uh, Psalm 110. Where God says, or David says, I'm sorry, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Have you ever thought of what Jesus is doing now? What is, he, what is Jesus doing right now? Because he's alive, we know that. He's raised from the dead. But if you read your, your New Testament, Acts chapter 1, he ascends back up into heaven. He leaves. He, he goes away. He's not here anymore. He's not walking the earth anymore. What's he doing right now? Is he just waiting for God to say, okay, go back? See, is he just hanging around waiting? No. What is Jesus doing? Scripture tells us he is seated at the right hand of God, and his main work, his main work is interceding for God's children, interceding for the saints, interceding for those who have placed their faith in him, for those who are his brothers and sisters. Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of God right now. Listen to Romans 8, verse 33 and 34. Paul writes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is a doctrine that we often don't talk about when it comes to Christ. We talk often about what Christ did when he was born, when, when he was alive on the earth, when he died, even his resurrection. We'll celebrate that at Easter and talk all about it. But what is he doing right now? He's interceding for us. But why does that matter? Why, why, do, why does that even make a difference in my life right now? Friends, Jesus, all the time, is interceding on your behalf to God. Those of us who have put our trust in Christ, 
those of us who have come to Jesus for salvation and forgiveness, he is at the right hand of God representing us. And his very presence there, with the scars still on his hands and feet and his side, his very presence is a constant representation before God the judge that we are blameless before him and that we are forgiven. Do you remember Job chapter 1? We get a wonderful window into the spiritual world that we get really nowhere else in the Bible that Satan comes before God to accuse Job. Satan comes before God and God allows Satan an audience with him. And Satan comes before God and does what Revelation 12 says he does all the time. He accuses God's people. He accuses the godly. He accuses Job before God. And he says, Job, the only reason he loves you is because you give him what he wants, because you made his life easy. He's accusing Job before God. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is happening all the time with us. Satan is our accuser, the Bible says. Multiple times, he is our accuser, and he accuses us day and night before God. He brings charges against us before God. And I am here to tell you, they are not all false. You would think Satan comes before God with all of these lies. He does come with lies, but he also comes with the truth. Comes before God and says, God, John Davis does not deserve your love. He has sinned against you in this way and in this way and in this way. He has turned away from you and your son Jesus. He has devalued you. He has not loved you as he should. Here are all the ways that he has sinned before you. And it is true. But the most amazing news in all the world is that when that happens, all God has to do is turn to his right hand and see Jesus with the scars still on his hands and feet because he got those at the cross. And at the cross, he paid for every single one of my sins. And so because Jesus has paid for every single one of my sins, none of Satan's accusations stick. Jesus can just stand up and show him. And then Satan is driven back. He slinks back because he has nothing else. We are blameless before God if we are in Christ. Not because we are innocent, not because we are sinless, but because we, we, have, we have had our sins paid for in full by Jesus on the cross. That is why Paul says in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Satan, you bring all the charges you want, and even if they're true, I am in Christ. I am taken care of. And so you can back off. I can have confidence before Satan even. Because my sins have already been paid for. And Jesus' sacrifice is more than enough. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. I don't have to pay for them ever again. Because he's already paid for them. You can have that. You can have that confidence and that assurance if you come to Christ. If you have not yet done that. If you have not yet given your life to Jesus. You can have that this morning. And you can know that with every accusation that Satan brings, Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you. 1 John 2.1, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate, that's what he's doing. And so finally, 
I want to bring your attention to what it says at the end of that quotation from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Brothers and sisters, one day God will put Jesus' enemies under his feet. One day God will put all of the enemies of Jesus under his feet. In other words, God will humble all of the enemies of Christ and will exalt Christ himself. We sang earlier, he is exalted on high. He is. He is exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. But at one day, one day, God will exalt Christ so much and humble all of his enemies so much that they will become his footrest. Picture a king who is so exalted and his servants are in such a, a lowly, subservient position that when the king needs his footrest, when the king needs to put his feet up, he snaps. And then his servants get down on their hands and their knees and they become his footrest. Right? Think of a king like that. Well, God says that is the way that he will put Christ's enemies under his feet, and they will serve as Jesus' footrest to prop his feet up. The enemies of Satan and sin and death will be put under Jesus' feet. Listen to Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15, 24. These are beautiful and hopeful and wonderful all at the same time. Verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to, to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There is coming a day where even the enemies of Satan and sin and death are defeated and put under the feet of Christ. But it is not just those enemies. It is not only those enemies that this refers to. It will not only be Satan and demons and sin and death that are humbled in this way. In the end, all who denied Jesus' resurrection will be included in that group. All who scoffed at Jesus' teaching. All who relegated him to a teacher and nothing more. A mere human being and nothing more. All who refused to come to him for forgiveness. They will be treated as his enemy. And so when that day comes, the question that I have for you is, which side will you be on? There is no neutral ground here. There is no neutral ground. This will include all who were indifferent toward him. There's no neutral ground. All who were indifferent toward Christ, even those who don't actively hate him, but just have never given him their lives. When he returns, they will be considered his enemies to be put down under his feet for all eternity. There will be no neutral ground. Either you will be his friend or you will be his enemy. Where do you stand? Where do you stand today? We do not know when he will return. There is an urgency to respond to the gospel message. The gospel message tells us that we are sinners who have sinned against a perfectly holy and righteous God, the ruler of the universe and the maker of heaven and earth. We have sinned against him, and we deserve his punishment. And the only way that we can get out of it, the only way that we can receive his forgiveness, 
is by pledging our allegiance and our love to his son Jesus, by repenting of our sins and confessing him as Lord of our lives and being baptized into his death and into his name, you can have your sins washed away and you can be right with God knowing that when Jesus returns, you will be counted as a friend and not as an enemy. Knowing that until he returns, that you have an advocate with the Father, that you have one who is interceding for you always at the right hand of God. Have you done that this morning? There's an urgency here because we do not know when he will return. And we do not know when God might call our number and our time on this earth may be through. And so we call you, we challenge you to respond to the gospel before it is too late. Right now, we want to give a time of response. We're going to do this in two ways. We're going to give here in just a little bit a time for any to come forward and respond to the gospel and God's word in a public way. But before we do that, we want to give a few moments of silent, reflective prayer. And we're asking during this time that every single one of us go to the Lord in prayer and respond to him from our hearts. God has spoken to you. Whatever he has laid on your heart, now you have a time where you can speak back to him and to respond to him and pour your heart out to him. We ask you and challenge you to do that right now silently by yourself as we pray for a few moments and then we'll come back together and we'll have that public invitation time. Let's pray.